0: Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. On this episode, I'm going to look back a bit. I've been doing this for a while, and I've had a chance to talk to some really fun people, people I never would have had a chance to talk to otherwise, and hopefully you've had a chance to listen to some people that you might not have had a chance to listen to otherwise. But I'm thinking back of some, during my first 10 episodes, I was just getting the knack of it, had some fun people on, but a lot of the guests during that time we're friends. I started out with Ken Brown as my first guest. Ken's my longtime birding buddy, and Bruce Labar was my second guest. So I'm going to start this episode with their stories of how they got started birding. I think they're fairly typical of how people get into birding. And it was kind of fun to listen back today as I put this together at their stories when I asked them, Ken, Bruce, how did you get started in birding? Listen and see what you think. Ken, tell us about
1: your early birding experiences and how it all got started for you. Well, I started in the summer of 1975. I was down in Monmouth, Oregon. And uh, I think the, f- well, I used to go backpacking all the time and I was fishing outdoors all the time. And when I was backpacking, I heard woodpeckers pecking on trees, drumming mm-hmm. away. And I thought, cool. hmm, boy, it sure would be fun if I knew what those were. It'd add a lot to my backpacking trip. You know, I'd Good thought. be able to explore and get a little more acquainted with the natural world. So uh, I think I got a little pair of binoculars, just a cheap pair. And I, I started taking little walks. And one of the first birds I saw was a white-crowned sparrow. And I don't think I even knew what it was at the time. I didn't have a bird guide. Sure. But uh, it had its uh, head feathers on the crown erected. And they were just sparkling white. I think it would just taken a bath. Sure. And I looked at that and I thought, oh my God, you mean birds aren't all brown? Really? Gray? <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of got me excited. I, I started you know watching around the house i set up a feeder in the yard and was, i found a couple of neat birds right off the bat i found we had goldfinch and uh, i found a lazuli bunting oh oh my god i that thought that blue oh, oh that was that was a cool bird they are and then uh, i had a flock of western tanagers mostly males in oh my in, in, in yeah. my yard in the spring and oh my God, I thought I was in South America. I was I was in heaven. That uh, is cool. I, I was hooked by then, and uh, I had a uh, a little flycatcher that was around. I lived in an oak grove, uh-huh. and I had a flycatcher, and it would come around and it would fly around and sit in the trees. And I followed that thing around for weeks. So you had a bird guide by now. You got yourself a guide. I got two little bird guides. I got them from Portland. They were just little pamphlets. Oh, they weren't even like the golden guide or anything. It wasn't a golden guide. It was just little pamphlets like, uh, you know, birds of Portland or birds of Oregon. Sure. So it was just a little beginning thing. But they had, you know, most of the birds I was looking at. So um, I followed this bird around for weeks. And I was, you know, is it a flycatcher? Is it an impidnax? I didn't know what an impidnax was there, but is it one of those with the wing bars and the eye ring? Yeah. Or is it a peewee? You know, yeah, I feel like some, sometimes we still have those thoughts. <laughs> 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 Hopefully, if they're uh, singing, <laughs> we can get a little better idea. Yeah. I had no idea about voice identification. I was trying to identify it on, you know, field marks. Sure. And I don't know if I ever really did identify it, but I followed around for weeks anyway. So that was basically how I got started. Sure. And then I uh, I went on a couple trips with Carvallis Audubon. Okay. The first one was just a little close-in trip. I, could, I can remember seeing Golden Crown Kinglets and Chickadees and that kind of stuff. And then I went on a big bus trip, and it was full. It must have been 60, 70 people. I don't, sure. I don't know how many, but it was... Big yellow school bus, and we went over to Malheur. It's <laughs> <laughs> a long ways from Corvallis. <laughs> but before we got, I, I'd never been on any you know big trip like this. I didn't know what to expect. First time around a bunch of birds. I didn't know any birds. You know, I, just, I knew four or five birds toys that came to my feeders, sure. song sparrow. And they said, "Well, we're going to go out to William Finley here, and there's a there's a Louisiana heron." Now, for those of you who are new birders, Louisiana heron is what we used to call tricolored heron. Sure, sure. (laughs) So we go out to William Henry and we start cruising the roads and all of a sudden they stop and everybody gets out. They set up a few scopes and sure enough, they've got it sitting in a tree. Well, to me, it looks like a great blue heron. It's way off in the distance. They say, well, look at that white belly. You know, look at that white belly. You know. So that was my first, like- First rare bird. (laughs) I didn't really, you know, I didn't identify. It wasn't really countable sure. for me. But I kind of seeing what they were, you know, what they I were. Got doing, the idea. Some of these guys are on. pretty hot shit. Yeah. So then we we head for Malia here. We get over there, and I, I don't know how many birds they got on the trip. They must have been, you know, over a hundred. That's a lot yeah. of birds out there. We didn't get uh, ibis. I remember that. Yeah. But I can the birds I can remember are like Western Kingbird. And turkey vultures, and I think my first gray flycatcher went out in the sagebrush and oh, all yeah. that. But the thing that was really fun on the way home, they stopped in sisters oh. and they cruised the back roads. For, yeah, for a pinion jay? No, not pinion jay, oh. not at that time. I don't know if pinions were being seen then. Okay. I, I think that's a little later, but for a green tailed towhee. Oh. And all of a sudden the bus stops. I didn't I had no idea what a green tail toe he was. Mm. <laughs> the bus stops and these people start jumping off the bus. And I mean this it takes five minutes to debarge. <laughs> <laughs> and people are running out through the woods in really? little sorties, you know, little groups heading yeah. out through the woods. And I get off, I don't know what I'm doing. I just head out through the woods, just following them through. And you'd come up on a little group and you go, You seen it? She said, no, they're out there further. So I'd go a little further. Finally got out to, I don't know, three or 400 yards off the, the uh, road, and the guys are starting to come back. And they said, well, it flew off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, man, this is, uh, this is pretty exciting stuff. <laughs> really, really. Yeah. So that was my uh, pretty much my Corvallis Audubon and uh, Monmouth. Um, birding adventures and then I moved up we moved up here in September right
0: oh just this first
1: year so and you're down there just a few months five so I was just boom 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 yeah I got up here and I can remember going down to Sixth Avenue we lived on 8th mm-hmm. in North End now we're in Tacoma and Tacoma about, yeah and um I walked down and there was a pay down there then I called Tahoma Audubon right started my membership and it wasn't long before I was looking at a tohi. <laughs> <laughs> Which is our different local newsletter? <laughs> oh, Tohwe, yes. Oh, you're right, and a different Tohwe <laughs> than the Greentails one you didn't see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got I got into uh, um, the Tohoma Audubon and got pretty active. I started going on field trips, and it wasn't long before um, they asked me if I would like to be on the field trip committee. And I said, "Well, geez, I I don't hardly know birds. I don't know anything. I just knew in Washington." Sure. And they said, "Well, come on, come on." If you look like an able <laughs> boy.
2: <laughs> so,
1: and there were four or five of us on the committee, and we'd meet every three months. And that's really where I I first met uh, Georgia Ramsey. She was oh, okay. on. She was on the committee with uh, the head of the president or the leader of the committee right. was Wally Wilkins. And Georgia was a big mentor for you, wasn't she? Georgia was a very big mentor. She started I started off with a relationship with her and then I met Bob and I traveled all over with them and saw a lot of cool birds. Yeah. I know you just seemed like everywhere
0: I go you tell me, yeah, Bob and Georgia were here with me or I was here with Georgia 35 <laughs> years
1: ago or something. Well we used to have I used to have fun with them um, when they we'd go somewhere here in Washington, I would uh, I would ask them, wherever we were at, have you been here before? Have you been on this road before? Right. And I can't remember one time. That they hadn't. That they said they hadn't been on the road. And they, this could be, you know. Middle of nowhere. A two-track. Out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, we've been here. <laughs> they could tell you the details of what they saw. Yeah. So they were wonderful mentors. They knew yeah. Washington completely, inside out. Well, I can tell you.
0: If the Ramseys knew Washington Inside Out, Ken knows it pretty darn near as well now. He is one of the best field trip leaders I've ever been on. I feel like my specialty is being his sidekick. I help with crowd management and a little little better hearing than he has now, but uh, I really love being the uh, a sixth assistant or second guide on trips that Ken leads because I would have to do very little planning. I just go along. Ken jokes that uh, I can get lost in a parking lot, and he always knows where he is, and it's pretty much true. But anyway, we have fun together, Uh, and I think his story is pretty typical of birders. Uh, Something triggers you into birding more specifically than a general interest in natural things, Uh, and you meet the right people, the right things happen, something sparks your interest, and some percentage of those people that that happens to become birders. And Ken is uh, the penultimate birder. He is passionate, he is active, he's in his 70s now and still sharp as a tack in terms of a birder, a great field trip leader, and a really good friend. So I hope that came through in that recording. Bruce is next. Uh, Hear Bruce's story and see what you think.
2: And I remember we were hiking the Summerland Trail or something and... uh... And I laid down, and I was eating some trail mix, and I fell asleep. And I got up, and and all these Canada Jays were all over me. and I AKA didn't know, great Jays. Yes, yeah, the time. Eight, or camp robbers or whatever. And I didn't know what the hell they were, and I wanted to know what they were. And so I actually, I remember this actually going to the guide and trying to find it, and I did. And I think a lot of birders talk about signature birds, and... Uh, and I think the bird it kind of got you into looking or listing right. or whatever, and so I've always said Canada Jay, and um, to today I to this day it's one of my favorite birds. And anyways, and after that we made it on down to Santa Cruz, California, and we found we loved it down there. Uh, we were into alternative. Uh, foods, you know, we're vegetarians, and we're into yoga, and Santa Cruz was perfect at that time. This is 1971, and we ended up in a couple of places, and we ended up finally in a house that we rented, a little cabin house, and there were birds everywhere, and I I, I couldn't figure out what they were. <laughs> there was like, I remember hooded Orioles, and house finches, and humming, hummingbirds, and you know, things I had no experience with. And um, and then I, the the local paper, the Santa Cruz Sentinel, had an article about uh, a bird walk and sponsored by the Santa Cruz Bird Club. So I got real excited and I told my wife, I said, you know, I really want to go on this. So I uh, and I she,
0: she made the mistake of saying okay. Yeah, she made <laughs> Oh, my gosh, did she ever.
2: And little did she know what she was in for. And uh, so then I went on this bird walk, and I am now seventy three years old and I think the bird walk that I went on, most of the people were probably that age, and I was the youngest thing they had seen in a long time, so they kind of took me under their wing, sure, and they were just real excited to have young young people, you know and uh, and and I was amazed I mean, they were going over here's a flicker, and over here's a rent it, and over here's this and and I'm going. How do you know that? And they said, Well, you know, we 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 know sounds, and and that fascinated me. And, and they were real sharp. They scared you know, they shared a scope, and and I saw a bunch of birds I'd never seen before. Sure. And, and I was hooked. And so I think um, I joined the club. And there was one other. Well, there's about two other people that were of age, of my age, kind of. One guy was named Randy Morgan, and he was a local Santa Cruz bird record keeper, mm-hmm. and he was an unbelievable naturalist. Um, he knew every plant in Santa Cruz County, and he worked as an environmental specialist, and he'd be hired to go out right. and, and to inventory and, a survey. In inventory an area before it was you know, developed or whatever. He knew all the grasses. He knew all the birds. A uh, fascinating um, person, and he taught me a lot. And then I kept going on field trips. A lot of these people, and um, and then uh, University of Santa Cruz started to really expand, and a bunch of people, younger people, showed up and that were interested in birds. So I got some of those people involved with the bird club. Uh-huh. And then and then I actually started becoming proficient, and so they let me uh, lead a few trips.
0: Well, Bruce got a start back then, and since then. I'm guessing he couldn't even estimate how many trips he's led. He was a big-time field trip leader in California during his days there. You can learn a lot about that on the Bird Banner episode number three when I talked at length with Bruce. And since he moved to Washington, he's been a big field trip leader with WASS and the local Audubon Society and other other things. I do the Shorebird Festival at Hoquiam, the Grace Harbor Shorebird Festival. He and I, he leads a trip that I help him with uh, uh, the last few springs. Uh, and we're sure glad, the Washington community at least, is sure glad that Bruce got his start as a field trip leader in California. Uh, my first nationally known guest, maybe Bill Bruce might be pretty well-known, but my first real nationally known guest on the episode was Dorian Anderson. Dorian did the Bicycle Big Year several years ago, became pretty well-known for his Biking for the Birds blog, and is just such a character that everyone seems to know Dorian. How can you not know and like Dorian if you're in the birding community? seems like he's pretty hard to avoid. Uh, He is a really fun guy and, and has a good feel uh, for some aspects of the psychological aspects of birding and that sort of thing, so I want I cut two clips out of his episode: one about why birding is so addicting, and another about why did he do his big year on a bicycle? How, how did that all come about? So I thought they're pretty fun to listen to. Check these out.
3: People play the lottery for a reason, right? There's there's an inherent amount of uncertainty built yes. into the process. Oh yeah, and people yeah. watch. People watch sports for the same reason that there's this uncertainty built into the equation, and people who don't bird don't understand that it's that inherent uncertainty that, that drives birding as well, because you never know what you're going to find. And as a result, it is
0: that—that's what makes something addicting. You know, if if you got the birding. exact anticipated result every time you did something, it'd get boring. But but you know, exactly. things that you get really hooked on have that unpredictable, wildly positive result. <laughs>
3: Exactly. And I think that in a world where there's a lot of routine,
0: yeah, you broke away, you broke the mold.
3: So yeah, and it was great. I loved my time at Stanford. I didn't do much birding there, unfortunately, because I was drinking a lot of beer and spending a lot of time playing ultimate frisbee. Uh, so the, the interest really kind of got crushed through college. Uh, I'm pretty open about this. I'm actually an alcoholic. Oh, so, okay. Um, A lot of kind of my trajectory through my 20s was motivated by alcohol and partying and other kind of social pursuits. And then it was when I kind of got sober that I ended up reconnecting with birding. And that is where the genesis for the 2014 Bicycle Big Year came. It was kind of reclaiming some of these childhood dreams that alcohol and science to some degree, because I was so busy in my lab for those 15 years, had stolen from me, so to speak. Um, So that's why the the big year, it it was kind of, it was as much a, a personal endeavor as it was a birding endeavor. And I thought the bicycle would be a really interesting vehicle, not only to explore physical space, but also to... To explore myself. Yeah, you, you were pretty open
0: to. about that in your blog. I know I followed your blog. Uh, I discovered it, boy, early in January of 2014, and mm-hmm. boy, it was fascinating reading all year. It was, uh, it was great. I loved that. But well, uh, thank you. But yeah, you were. I mean, it was it was clear that, that that there was some element of this big year that was you know restorative for you.
3: Mm-hmm, exactly, and I think that also in the time looking back since I've since I got off the bicycle, thinking about uh, my motivations and kind of and, and trying to understand myself better. It's been, it's, been a, it's been a very long process through the bike trip and in the years that followed. And it's ongoing, and that's what makes it interesting. I think that the bicycle trip is kind of one of the pins on which my life will swing, um, kind of not only away from science, but towards a better understanding of myself. Um,
0: I've had a chance on this podcast to talk to some pretty smart people but I have to say I'm not sure if any of them were more impressive than Bill Twite. Bill is a longtime Washington birder, California birder before Washington birder, but a longtime Washington birder who's uh, almost legend in the community, uh, is really smart, really nice, and was a really cool guest to have on. We focused on pelagic birding with Westport Seabirds, and I'm going to— Cut a clip out of that episode that I'm going to play back that I learned so much from. I mean, I had a pretty good idea, good idea of how pelagic birding trips go and what the leaders do and how it all works. But Bill just has such a clear, concise understanding of the geography, geology of the underwater areas off the coast of Washington, how the trip is done, why things are done, why we find birds, where we find them. And I think if you listen, you'll learn a lot too. So this was a clip I took from uh, the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number five with Bill Twite, and I really recommend you just listen to Bill that whole episode. It seems like every two minutes he teaches you something. But anyway, check out this clip. Yeah, pelagic birding is a whole new world. I mean, it's just, for someone who hasn't been on a pelagic trip, it's just kind of amazing. You go out there and see these birds that, that they don't go to land except to make babies. I mean, that's all, the only reason yeah, they, the only exactly. reason they set foot on land. Yeah, kind of give a recap of the trip yesterday for people who don't know about it.
4: Sure, um, we uh, headed out um, using what we call sort of our normal route, um, which means once you leave Grays Harbor, which is a large coastal estuary, um, we head pretty much straight west across a pretty broad continental shelf, and and that's actually characteristic of most of Washington is that the continental shelf is anywhere from. Uh, as narrow as 20 miles off of Cape Flattery to as much as almost 35 miles or so, um, off the Southern coast, which is great for seabirds because uh, those continental shelf areas, particularly where you've also got a, a boundary current, um, those tend to be some of the most productive parts of the ocean. And as a consequence, they really tend to concentrate seabirds. And so for us, even a slow day will still be thousands of seabirds during the, um, particularly during the spring, summer, and early fall when, uh, in addition to the local breeders, um, we've got some of the Alaska birds and a large proportion of birds from the southern hemisphere for their austral winter,
3: yeah.
4: um, all congregating on the food resources available over the shelf.
0: Yeah, it, it, is, it can be shocking.
4: Yeah. It, it can be pretty awe-inspiring. Uh, city shearwaters in the hundreds of thousands some days. Yeah. Uh, then on the outer edge of the shelf, a couple different things happen. Um, one is you get some, a, a phenomenon called submarine canyons, and there's several of these submarine canyons. Um, um, the dot, the, uh, the Washington shelf, the outer part, one of them is Gray's Canyon due west of Grace Harbor. And we almost always try and head there on a pelagic trip just because... Even if there's not much happening over the shelf, and even in a highly productive region like the Washington continental shelf, some days can be kind of blah, or, you know, other days can be fantastic. Um, so even on days when there's not much happening over the shelf, maybe because there um, hasn't been as much wind-driven upwelling lately, or um, the uh, um, the spring plankton bloom didn't come in as strongly as, as it does in other years, and and so... Productivity over the shelf is a little lower. There's almost always productivity over the canyon because it doesn't rely on wind-driven upwelling as much. At The canyon, the the north-south currents, as they encounter the walls of the canyons, uh, portions of those get deflected up towards the surface, and so you get essentially current-driven upwelling, which is steadier and more predictable Mm -hmm. than wind-driven upwelling. Um, Same is true of the outer shelf um, the, the slope, the outer slope of the shelf itself, but because that's north south and the currents are running north south, you don't you don't get as quite don't, as much of that effect as, as you do from the canyons themselves. Sure. So we headed for Grays Canyon, and um, and and indeed it, it delivered in terms of uh, as we got over the canyon, uh, birds we hadn't been seeing much of over the shelf like albatross and kittiwakes and cassin's auklets um, definitely increased in numbers. Um, and what we like to do most trips is do what we call a chum stop at the very west end of the canyon. Uh, in other words, the furthest offshore end of the canyon, about right. where the canyon mouth really cuts into the main north-south line of the of the outer shelf slope. Okay. And we sat there for oh about forty minutes, having put out our usual chum slick, which is a combination of <laughs> vegetable oil with a little bit of cod liver oil. And that creates the visual appearance of, of an actual sort of uh, uh, upwelling type area on, on the water surface because often upwelling is associated with a high degree of plankton. An upwelling front is associated with a high degree of plankton and, and as they're predated on, they tend to release oils and as those accumulate on the surface, you, you get a little bit of a, a sheen that marks a convergence line okay. or a confluence line. Um, it's natural. I It's not, uh, this isn't the same as oil slicks caused by uh, um, Tankers a, a, a man-made yeah. catastrophe. Um, and then the color oil in that also provides odor um, that sort of smells like plankton, smells like productivity. And for a lot of seabirds that forage using a multiple set of clues, um they'll use both visual as well as uh, olfactory clues. And so that cod liver oil, particularly if there's a bit of a breeze, um, that, that scent carries pretty quickly a fairly long ways. Um, and it so is ama- mix, it amazing to uh, see them
0: come in, yeah.
4: It can be fun watching them sort, essentially bloodhound their way up the scent trail. Uh, and then you throw in some um, chopped up beef suet to actually give them another visual attractant as well as a reason to hang around okay. and slick once they land. and <coughs> Albatross in particular just seem to really gobble beef suet chunks like they're M&Ms, uh, but so do fulmars and other things too. So you, you put all those together and you, you can pretty quickly set up sort of an attractive uh, station for birds. And of course, actually the boat itself also functions as a visual attractant. Mm-hmm. a lot of the birds foraging out there have learned to associate fishing vessels um with um with available seafood and so they'll often come by and just check out a, a vessel even if you don't look like a standard fishing trawler or or longliner um they, they probably aren't still, that sophisticated they've, they've Yeah yeah they they've learned it can be worthwhile to to swing by <coughs> So we chummed there for a while um and it worked pretty well. We had some really nice close views of Albatross um, and some pretty close passes from Kitty Wakes. Um, later in the year when there's a much higher diversity, that's how we often get our best views of storm petrels. Um, and sometimes you get full i just mean, right below you off the stern, within a foot or two of the boat. Um and often shear, other shearwaters coming in, Jaegers will swing by and investigate. But that's later in the year. And in the winter we we don't expect that kind of diversity. Um so as we were finishing up there, our skipper Phil Anderson, who we've been working with for um well, since the early nineties actually, so um yeah. coming towards uh, four decades. He's so, pretty darn good. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> He's he is really good at what he does and he enjoys this. He loves the birding. Yeah. Um And uh, he loves having the birders on board. Um, He'd been keeping track on both his radar and his AIS system, which is Automated Information System, which is a a relatively new system that allows him not only to see that there's a boat out there, but actually, if they're broadcasting over AIS, he knows what boat it is. Uh, He usually can tell how fast they're moving. And, um, and then so he can make a reasonable inference of what they're doing. And in this case, uh, the boat showed up on the AIS as a small trawler, and it was moving at a speed that to him indicated that it was actually towing the net, so it was actively fishing. Okay. And coming towards us, um, still 10 miles south, but he sort of calculated if we ran for about half an hour south along the outer shelf, which we like to do anyway because that can be a very productive birding area right Um, he calculated we'd be able to intersect with them um first off running south along the outer shelf turned out to be a good decision because we got some good views of um several tufted puffins which can be very hard for us to find nowadays their population in washington has really declined and so um it's always great to see them, and, and in this case, it was really interesting to see them because they were sort of partly molted, um, just beginning to really acquire their breeding plumage, and we got a chance to see which, you know, what feathers come in first, and mm-hmm. and it was interesting to me to see that those long whiskers, the tufts themselves, right. come in before the white face patch, really. Yeah,
0: they were them. there, and they had the but, a bigger part, sort of bigger red bill than maybe in the winter, but not the white face patch, yeah
4: exactly exactly so you can kind of see and, and and it's not surprising when you look at the pigeon guillemots in the sound right now a lot of them are kind of blotchy but we don't get a chance to see that very often with puffins so that sure. was fun to see that so we um anyway so we worked south and sure enough um in about a little over half an hour pulled up towards the trawler and and phil announced that we'd just gotten really lucky and they were just pulling their nets and um one of the the, um, the time periods uh, when when fish are most available from commercial fishing operations mm-hmm. to seabirds is when a trawler is bringing its net in. Okay. Um, and that's because you know even though they're pretty good at capturing a lot of of what they catch, um, some of what they're catching is small enough, um, and it doesn't have to be much of a percentage. It can be a pretty small percentage. But of a fairly large toe, a small percentage can still be a, you know, a fair
0: size fish. A lot, a lot of food of for, for, in, for a bird, yeah.
4: Exactly, yeah. And it's brought to the surface where things like albatross, which can't dive, um, can mm-hmm. actually get to it. Right. And um, in this case, the toe had been mostly a rockfish, and there's they caught a fair number of one species of rockfish that's fairly small. And so the smaller individuals were popping out of the net, <coughs> um, out of the trawl, the the mesh that forms the the trawl and just floating on the surface and oh boy was that ever an albatross bonanza (laughs) it was crazy Um, and that's where uh, a very good day became a great day (laughs) yeah it was was Um, extraordinary in addition to 90 black-footed albatross which is a huge number for the winter um 10 or 20 is a good number for the winter um Uh, In addition to the 90 albatross that had found this boat, 90 black-footed albatross that had found this boat and were clearly following it, waiting for it to do exactly what we witnessed, which is bringing the trawl net in, Um, there were either five or six laissons, which is also a really exciting number, and then, of course, the star of the day, the avian star of the day, those two uh, young short-tailed albatross.
0: Another well-known guest I had on the podcast was Ben Lizdas. Ben was well-known as a salesperson for Eagle Optics, and then when I was talking to him, he was working for Birdwatcher's Digest and Red Start Birding, Uh, but uh, he's moved on from there to another job now. But... Uh, I cut a clip from that episode talking about some of his favorite places. He, as, as part of his job, he just went to all these birding festivals, met all these really hot shit birders, uh, just got around, saw and talked to everybody and saw everything. So he had a good perspective of what are great places to go. So I took a little clip when I asked him, what are some of your favorite places you've been uh, on this adventure you do for a job? And uh, listen to this part. Do you have any favorite spots, places you really, really like to go or just enjoy, right. look forward to every year?
5: Yeah. I mean, the. so you and I just met not too San long ago at the San Diego not, Birding not bad, Festival. Yeah. And as someone who lives in Wisconsin, you know, by the time the end of February, beginning of March comes rolling around, it's nice to just escape kind of the, the winter a little bit at that point. And, and granted, I love winter, a big winter sports fan, but uh, the San Diego Birding Festival comes at the right time of year it's just beautiful there. The bird diversity is fantastic. It is. Um, and you know, the, the place itself is just, is great to visit. The great infrastructure, the restaurants, the food culture there. So all those things, I mean, when, when I look at what makes a great birding destination for me, I tend to look at it maybe more holistically than your average bird watcher. It's not just about the birding list, but that's important. But I do think about, you know, the, the food, the, the the lodging, the scenery, the, the whole part of the experience to me matters. So San Diego is a great spot. I also really like Southeast Arizona. Once again, another one of those border yeah. regions where you get, you know, uh, southern specialties. You know, not, not quite as nice streets.
0: in August as San Diego in March, but yes, good.
5: Yeah, but, but still, I mean, you <laughs> know, don't. Nice. don't yeah, pretty Southeast nice. Arizona in August is still pretty pleasant. You know, the monsoons are coming in and in the, those mountainous areas, you the yeah. temperatures are actually quite yeah, I, nice. I've, I've
0: done it. It's wonderful. Yeah.
5: Yeah, it, it's great. And uh, it's just it's beautiful. You know, the, the the it's remote, but it's it's gorgeous. So that's another one of those spots. And of course, you've got places like Cape May, New Jersey, where the birding is just Always consistently good, and the birding culture there is oh. so evolved. There's so well, many great birds. Every time that you turn
0: around, you see a legend. It seems like
5: exactly, exactly. We we did a reader rendezvous there that last fall, and uh, it was outstanding. We we, we all the any given day all the well-known birders you would run into and just have had these anecdotal conversations that would lead to these great birding insights and then the spectacle of fall migration in cape may it was yeah. it was outstanding whether we were we were at the raptor watch or uh, one morning we we're out birding at uh higby and the number of flickers northern flickers that were flying overhead streams and streams it, of it them it can be shocking it it, 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 it was you just stopped looking at them for a little while because you just figured, well, they're going to wear out and you know there's not going to be any more. You'd bird for like half an hour. You'd look up in the sky and they'd be like, there's a stream of flickers still going. Yeah, Just phenomenal. So it is um, those are a couple of places. I had a chance to bird in Israel for the Champions of the Flyway. Uh, kind of a, you know, it's a, right. it's a bird. I've heard of it. And that was another place where being able to experience migration over on that side of the planet, all the birds migrating north from Africa into continental Europe. That was another fantastic experience. And, uh, you know, Israel is kind of like a, a bit of a bottleneck as, a, as, as the birds kind of yeah. funnel up into Europe. They They congregate right there in the southern tip of Israel. So it's a great place to be able to witness and appreciate the same phenomena of migration that we have here. But the, you know, the the pieces of the puzzle, all the players are totally different of course with yeah. the bird species. So, so it's a, it's a really fast it was a fascinating experience doing that. Yeah, I'm going
0: I'm going to Morocco in April uh, with okay. the group and I'll kind oh, of get awesome. the the other other end of that funnel. It should be pretty spectacular. I'm really yeah, excited. Yeah, definitely. So, I'm going to wrap up by asking you to check out my Facebook page Bird Banner, and leave me some feedback as to what you'd like to hear on future Bird Banter podcast episodes. Do you have guests you'd like to hear, suggestions of topics you'd like to hear about? Uh, Would you like to be a guest? If so, let me know. I'm open to just about anything that's going to be fun and enjoyable. So get back to me, birdbander.com. You can leave comments on a blog post there. I'll check those out. Or you can get to me on Facebook, on the BirdBanner Facebook page. So uh, get back to me. Let me know what you think. And until next time, good birding, good day.